It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast, and I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our service on March 20th, 2011, downtown Covington. This is part nine of our series we've been in on the book of Philippians, Letters from Prison, and this is today's message is entitled The Way of Humility. So Paul gets in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he gets down into our everyday relationships with one another. Good stuff to listen to, challenging stuff to live by. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and head over to the talk. Uh, don't forget that we have resources online at northshorevineyard.org, that, uh, readings that go along with this season of Lent that we're calling 40 Days of Faith. So check that out Monday through Fridays. And we also have a couple of small groups that are happening during the week as well. Directions and all that stuff is on the website. Anyway, let's go ahead and head to the talk. Thanks for listening to North Shore Vineyard. Here we go. Well, welcome to North Shore Vineyard. My name is Crispin. I'm a pastor here and. Um, Glad to have you with us. Uh, we, we've been, this is your first time here, we've been in a, uh, what do we call this? A study of the book of Philippians for oh, a few, couple of months now. And we've made it all the way to the second chapter. So um, uh, we, we introduced the first two verses of chapter two last week, and now we're jumping on to chapter three and four. And just, just a, another shameless plug for, is it, is it feeding back a little in here, or is it just me? It's a little loud. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Less oppressive. It was starting, my, my voice was starting to annoy me. Um, uh, so I'm going to read the text this morning. And, and to set it up, I, I wanted to go ahead and read the text that we covered last week uh, just to give a little context uh, for the scriptures we're reading today. So Philippians, if you have your Bible, um, I should have marked it. Hang on. Philippians chapter... <laughs> My Bible, it's page 992. So um, I'm going to go ahead and start with verses 1 and 2, and then we'll get to the scriptures we're covering today. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So last week we talked about unity, and, and I... Recommend listening to it online if you want to get caught up to speed on that. So uh, Paul is encouraging them, first of, all to, first of all, to be on the same page. One heart, one mind, one spirit. You know, be working together. Then he goes on in verse 3, what we're going to cover today. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Let me ask a quick, quick, quick question here. Anybody in here ever been on a short-term missions trip before? Maybe to another country? Okay, yeah, we've got a few. Uh, I, I have a feeling if you've been to another country before, you probably can identify with this experience. I went on my first short-term missions trip back in like 1993. I was going to a Bible college up in Dallas, Texas, which uh, actually another local pastor was going to, uh, Steve Robinson. He was going to same Bible college, but he graduated, and I didn't, and uh, <laughs> see what happens now. <laughs> yeah, you just had to go. Uh, 
My mom actually went on a mission trip with him to China, but I, I, I opted for Guatemala and El Salvador. And I, I remember there's a mentality that you tend to get as an American, and you, just, you don't mean to have it at all, but you kind of think we're rich, prosperous, we got it all together. Many of us have multiple Bibles on our bookshelf, so we have all the answers. We have stuff we can offer to other people. And, and you usually, we're, we're not consciously aware of this attitude until you, you, you might become aware of it when you go to another country. Other countries are quite aware of it, but um, I, I went to Guatemala thinking like that, like I'm going to go help these poor people in Guatemala and El Salvador. And I had the experience once I got down there of, wow, these people need to pray for me. <laughs> I've talked to people over and over again who go to another country to bring change, to do good things. And, and 90% of them come back saying, wow, I went over there to help them, but I came back more changed. I, I read this quote, one of my, my favorite authors, uh, a guy named Henry Nowen. Uh, he wrote a, a little bitty book called Creative Ministry. Great book. He says, as long as we want to change the condition of other people because we feel guilty about our wealth, we are still playing the power game and waiting for thanks. But when we start discovering that in many ways we are the poor and those who need our help are the wealthy who have a lot to give, we become true social agents and do not give in to the temptation of power. Because we have discovered that our task is not a heavy burden or a brave sacrifice, but an opportunity to see more and more of the face of him who we want to meet. Isn't that great? He, he's saying that if you're coming into a short-term missions thing, just, oh, I'm the guy with the answers. I'm here to help you. I've got so much to offer you. Or, or, or out of a place of guilt, like, I feel so bad for all the stuff I have. I'm going to help somebody who doesn't have stuff. You're, you're missing the point. And Henry now is saying, no, the true point is coming into this with saying, what can I learn from you? I may be here to help you in a sense, but I'm a student. What can I learn? See, I, I met a pastor. We were working in a, a refugee camp in San Salvador, El Salvador, and it was, it was as bad a conditions as I've seen anywhere in the world. And I've, I've been to a lot of places in the world, and it was just horrible what these people were living in. I mean, pieces of cinder block and sheet metal just kind of pushed into a little place to stay, open sewage. And we were doing some medical stuff and working with a, a guy who was planning a church down there. Well, we got to hang out with the pastor that day, and we went over to, to his house. And, and he has a house that was smaller than probably most people's bathrooms. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people these days. Uh, it was certainly not even as big as our coffee room there. And it had, he had him, his wife, and two kids that were living in this little bitty thing. But there's no sense in, in any of them that they were cheated or victimized or that they were uh, somehow uh, less. If anything, hanging around with him, you know, he I start, starts telling like, oh, yeah, I get up every morning at 3 o'clock and, and spend the first two hours praying for the church, 3 to 5 in the morning. Like, wow, kind of reminds me of myself now. <laughs> I mean, kind of reminds me in the sense that that's totally... Not what happens. If I wake up at 3, three o'clock in the morning, it's to turn over. Uh, uh, <laughs> but then he would go and work a, a very hard, demanding job that he got paid very little for. And in the midst of that, he was planning a church in this refugee camp. And I'm thinking, after hanging out with this dude for a few days, he radiated 
grace and love and 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 it's like wow who's really rich here <laughs> who 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 really has riches here i need this guy to lay hands on me and pray for me and i want us to keep that kind of idea in mind as we look at the words of paul today because i think at the heart of what paul is getting at it's humility it's this idea of of not coming in as you know the man with the plan and the answers and all that into every situation that we face but it's coming in as students saying god what what can, what do you have to show me in here and, and, and as we take that attitude, like Henry Nouwen says, we begin to see the face of Jesus in all kinds of weird places that you wouldn't expect to see Jesus. I've got no segue for this next se- segment, but it's called uh, Reality Stars and Dirty Politicians. Um, there's a word, Paul, Paul writes in here, he's, he, he tells the church to, to forsake selfish ambition. Now, I'm no... Um, if anybody speaks Greek, I'm probably going to mess this word up, but this is the way I pronounce it in South Louisiana, erethea. And the word, it's the word that's translated into English, selfish ambition. Now, this is a word that, that goes all the way back. Aristotle actually used the word, and it, he used it to describe those with political ambition who will stop at nothing to get their own way and to gain power over others. And these are people who see everyone else's objects to step on so they can reach their own goal. This is a person that is dominated by rivalry. As one commentator put it, these are people who don't uh, fight to live, but they live to fight. Does anybody know anybody like that before? You know, just contentious, like always just trying to maneuver things to get their way. And we can certainly see this in the realm of politics, right? I mean, it was true in Aristotle's day, and it hasn't changed in 2,500 years since he wrote that. I I remember it was funny after Katrina... uh, we were, our church was working with a group uh, trying to restore a park over in Gentilly, and we're out there, and I'm not going to name the, the politician, a local politician who's prominent, that's all I'll say about him, but he, he comes out there to, to this, this fixing up of the playground, and he happened to arrive at the same time the news showed up. It was crazy. I don't know how they did that. It was just, just weird. Well, he gets out a paintbrush and he starts painting the the um, swing set and stuff and and the news people after about fi- fifteen minutes they got all the footage they wanted and then about two minutes after they were gone, a- amazingly he was gone too. Uh, he, he gave some comments about how much he believed in restoring New Orleans and New Orleans is going to come back and I believe in stuff like this and that's why I'm out here working hard today. I think they had to spray a little sweat on him and everything. He hadn't been out there long <laughs> enough, uh, but. This picture, while kind of, you know, you kind of go, ah, it, it's, it, unfortunately, we see a lot of that in the world of politics. I'm sure there's some good politicians out there somewhere. Um, but politicians, many times, they, that's, that's what they're known for. They're working the angles, trying to appear this way to one group and trying to appear this way to another group. But really, for many of them, it's just about power and, and their own personal agenda, and so we see that, but, but we also see it in the world of reality TV, right? I mean, every reality TV show, whether it's a Survivor or The Apprentice or whatever, they got to have several characters that are Arethea people, right? I mean, that's what makes reality TV fun, right? I mean, if they took out the manipulative, conniving people, I mean, what would reality TV be like? So speaking of reality TV, that, that's, that's my segue into the next segment. These are the top 10 grossing, uh, a few people from the top 10 
grossing reality TV stars of 2010. Coming in at number 10, we have Kendra Wilkinson. She made $2 million for being a reality TV star last year. Not bad, not bad. Um, number nine, we have a guy named Polly D. Anybody recognize this guy? Oh, oh no, oh no. I haven't seen Jersey Shore, but I'm, I want to now. After seeing Polly D, I'm thinking, wow, I, I think I'm missing out on something enlightening that, that might really affect me at a really deep level. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, coming in at number eight, we have a tie between Courtney and Khloe Kardashian. Okay, so, so Kim Kardashian is basically famous for really not much, and so her sisters are famous for even less. Um, <laughs> coming in at number seven, we have another Jersey Shore guy, The Situation. Is that a name or what? The Situation. Uh, that, that's all I got to say about that. Three million dollars he made for being a reality TV star, for doing this, doing this. Again, it's, it's making me want to watch Jersey Stores. I feel like I've, I've been deprived of something. Um, coming in at number six, we have Kate Gosselin, $3.5 million. And she doesn't even have a show anymore, I don't think. I mean, I, I really followed it a lot back when. Uh, $3.5 million divided among eight kids. That, that's, they're, they're all taken care of. And we'll just go ahead and, and cut to the chase. Number one on the list, Kim Kardashian coming in at... Six million dollars she made last year, and she's pictured with Paris Hilton here, who didn't make the list this year, but has made it in past years. Uh, these people would would kind of live up to the term that Paul is talking about. He says vain conceit. If Paul was talking nowadays, he would say reality TV stars. Why? Well, Kim Kardashian, the situation, Polly D. Uh, all these people on this list, are they famous because they've invented anything that helps humanity? Are, are they famous because they're very talented? I mean, it'd be one thing to be famous for being a good songwriter or performer. They're not even that. They're just famous for nothing. I mean, the situation, I haven't seen the show, but I can imagine, you know... It's, I mean, follow me around with a camera. I mean, I know I'm not as good looking as Kim Kardashian, but uh, <laughs> you know, at the last ser- service, I said that, and that was the only thing I got an amen on. I'm like, <laughs> no, you're not. Paul, Paul says, abstain from selfish ambition and vain conceit. The word that Paul uses for vain conceit is a word called kenodoxia, or kino- yeah, kenodoxia. Again, I might be butchering that in the Greek. But if, if you've ever been in church, you might have come across a song called The Doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you, heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The, the word, I've heard that, we've actually sung that song once or twice here. But doxology, I've, I was like, that's the weirdest name for a song. Well, here's the root. This is the behind the music. Dox means glory. So in that song, you're ascribing glory and honor to God. Well, if you take that, that, that bit doxia and you combine it with kino, you get a, a completely different word. And it's a word that, that means empty of glory, glory hungry. This term was used frequently in the Roman world to talk about people who thought a lot more of themselves than that was really merited. You know, it's one thing to, to find somebody who's proud of doing something, actually accomplishing something. I don't think that's that bad, right? You do a good job, you work hard, you build something, you contribute to society. That's not bad to, to, to 
I mean, even God, he looked at everything he created and he said, ah, it's good, right? But kenodoxia is, it's saying you're good when you've got nothing to back it up. As somebody told me once in my life, your, your mouth is writing checks that your butt can't cash. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, it was a good description of me at one time. <laughs> So if Paul was talking in, 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 t- in modern terms, he would be saying, he'd be saying, you guys in the Philippian church, he said, don't be like dirty politicians or reality TV stars. <laughs> it's toxic for your soul and it's toxic for the community of believers. He says, consider others better than yourself. Walk the path of humility. Uh, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, Author Peter Scazzaro writes of two types of relationships, the I-it relationship and the I-thou relationship. Now, these terms sound a little weird. I wish he came up with a cooler way to say them, but I couldn't come up with a cooler way. Uh, An I-it relationship is where you tend to look at people as objects for getting your agenda done. So when you're in these types of relationships, you will spend time with people, but it's, it's only done... Uh, because you have ulterior motives. Has anybody ever been an it and an I-it relationship before? Have you ever got the feeling somebody was valuing you not for who you are, but just, hey, you're good at this? Great. Uh, Okay, here's another question. Has anybody ever experienced that in church before? Oh, yeah, yeah. I I experienced that as a new Christian. I, you know, they found out that I could play music and I was excited to play and help out. And, but after about a year and a half, you know, I got to some places where, man, I don't think I need to be up there trying to help minister right now. I think I need some ministry. I think I just need to sit down in the crowd and, and take a break and, and connect with God outside of those things, which is really good for musicians to do sometimes. Um, and when I did that, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like, I kind of got blacklisted. Like, oh, you must be black, back. <laughs> backsliding. You must be uh, losing your, your fire for God or something because they were only valuing me for what I could do for their agenda. And so I think we've all been like that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever, have you ever been on the other side of that? Have you ever been the I in the I-it relationship? You ever looked at people as objects to get your agenda done? You didn't value them as people, but you I, I got to confess, I've done that before too. You know, years, several years ago, I, I was before I came over here to Planet Church. I was on staff at the Kenner Vineyard um, in Kenner, and I was the worship leader over there. And I came to that church. I'd never really attended the church, and I came on staff there before having really attended the church. And so I hit the ground running. And they were doing five services a weekend when I joined them. And then by the end of that first year, they'd already got up to seven, even eight services for a brief period of time. And so after one year, I was just burned out. I was like, God, I, I, this, is, this is rough. And I remember going out to Lake Pontchartrain to argue with God, because I argue with God at Lake Pontchartrain. Um, it works for me. And, and I went out there one day, and I was, I just, I was bummed, kind of depressed. And I, just, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I said, God, I, I just, this worship thing, I just feel like I'm a worship manager now. I don't feel like I'm, I'm, it just, I feel like I'm so distracted by everything. I don't even want to sing anymore. I, it's just, it's just a burden to me. 
And God said, well, that's your problem. I didn't create you to be a worship manager. I created you to be a worship pastor. Why don't you try pastoring people and stop worrying about these other issues? Now, no, no slam on anybody who's a manager in here. That's just not what I'm called to do. I'm, I'm thank God for people who are. But what I found out was that I had moved from being in I-thou relationships with people to being in I-it relationships. I was valuing the people on my team not for being people, but for what they could do to, to keep the thing going on the weekends. So if all of a sudden one of my drummers couldn't show up at the last minute or this person didn't play this line right or that, it would, it would really throw me into turmoil on the inside. Now, not a lot of people would know because I was, I, I'm, I'm really pretty good at being passive-aggressive. And so uh, it would just be the simmering kind of um, thing. And... Uh, all kinds of confessions this morning. Uh, but it was throwing me into turmoil on the inside. And, and what God was saying to me is, stop looking at people as objects to get something done. Just start valuing them as people created in the image of God. As people that, that, that just pastor them. And so I started doing that. Immediately I changed things and I started spending time with the people on the worship team, building relationships, talking through things, praying with each other. And, and all of a sudden things began to change. I really didn't focus much at all on the weekend, what we were going to sing, what we were going to play. I didn't let it, you know, destroy things if the song didn't turn out right or so-and-so didn't show up. All of a sudden though, the fruit of that was that the worship actually got better. The fruit of that was that people, when they felt valued, when they felt connected, all of a sudden, they delivered. All of a sudden, the sum was better than the parts. I was more fulfilled, and so were they. I think a good... And so he goes on to say, um, that's the I-it relationships. The I-thou relationship is a, is a relationship between two people willing to connect across their differences. God fills in that space in-between space of an I-thou relationship. God not only can be glimpsed in genuine dialogues, but penetrates the in-between space. So when, when we stop treating people as its or objects, when we actually start valuing them as created by God, all of a sudden, God fills in that space. When, when we come up to someone who's different, with us, different than us, maybe socially, culturally, racially, uh, theologically, whatever, and we connect with them anyway as a human being, all of a sudden God fills in that space. I think a good picture of this comes from uh, history here. Uh, anybody ever heard of the Christmas truce of 1914? Okay. Yeah, I, I saw a documentary on it a couple of months ago. This, this is uh, fascinating. Back in, this is a, an actual article uh, done in the London newspaper. World War one was going on, and out on the Western Front, you had the Germans fighting, you know, the British and, and the French. And one night, it's 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 coming up to Christmas in 1914, and one night, these British soldiers are, are, are you know in their trenches, looking across this wasteland. You know, it's World War One was really the first war where they had trench warfare, barbed wire, tanks, automatic weapons. War had gotten very sophisticated and gruesome at that point but these British soldiers were kind of struck that night because all of a sudden they began to hear the music of Silent Night they're like what's going on 
they heard it. It was in German, so they didn't recognize the words, but they recognized the tune. And all of a sudden, they see off in the distance these, these lights coming towards them, and they're, they're like, what is this? Is this some kind of trap, some kind of joke? Well, it was a German soldier. They got pictured here. He was carrying a little Christmas tree with candles on it. And so finally, there was a couple of British troops that were just brave enough to, to think that, okay, maybe this isn't some kind of ambush. Maybe these guys are really making a, a, a peaceful act here. So bit by bit, the British soldiers came out. Well, what transpired over the next week was what they became known as the Christmas truce of, of 1914. It was totally grassroots. These were just soldiers from both sides. But they, as they came out, they, they, they began hanging out together, sharing cigarettes together, even playing soccer together. Out here, this is this is like the no man's land in between the trenches, and they're playing soccer. And uh, what they found was that really, once you get past a lot of these demonizing things that each side has said, these people were really not that different. And that really threw, you know, when the top brass heard about this, boy, they were not happy at all. You can't have your troops beginning to see the other guys as human. <laughs> they have to be monsters. I mean, if you'd look at some of the propaganda about the, the Germans on the British side from that period, man, you'd think the Germans were like the most diabolical. You, know, you just think they were Satan incarnate. Same thing for the, the Germans looking at the British. But what they began to find as they began to hang out together was, wow, these Germans, they, they kind of miss their home like I miss my home. Wow, some of these guys left their wife and kids back their home too. Wow, they like playing soccer. And, and then we got this funny picture I came across. This is two British soldiers who they were um, kind of seen in this picture. They they'd cut down some mistletoe. And, and at first I thought, that's kind of cool. But then I thought, these are two German soldiers I mean, Russian, uh, British soldiers bringing back mistletoe to a bunch of guys fighting. So hey, it was a little weird, a little weird. Uh, <laughs> but see, what happened in the Christmas truce of 1914 is they, they moved from an I-it relationship to an I-thou relationship. You ever done that before? You ever just... You, you, think horrible things about somebody and rah, 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 you know, they're, they're just the uh, stereotype and then you get to know that person and you're like, wow, wow, maybe we have a little bit more in common. Again, this is the fruit of humility. I want to read a passage today from uh, Luke 22, uh, going with the uh, message translation. This is starting in verse 21. Jesus, up to this point, he's been doing... Most of his ministry in Galilee, uh, around the, the north shore of the Red Sea, and, and he's now headed to Jerusalem. He's going to celebrate the Passover, and then he's going to head to the crucifixion. So uh, earlier in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples, go find this upper room in Jerusalem, and that's where we're going to celebrate Passover. And he says, I long to celebrate Passover with you guys. It's a very special thing for Jesus to do with his disciples. Uh, so we're going to pick up the story in verse 21. Jesus has... They've had the Passover meal, and now Jesus has actually instituted uh, the Lord's Supper right there. So they've taken communion. Jesus says, Do you realize that the hand of the one who is betraying me is at this moment on this table? It's true that the Son of Man is going down a path that is already marked out. No surprises there. 
But for the one who turns him in, turns traitor on the Son of Man, this is doomsday. They immediately became suspicious of each other and began quizzing one another, wondering who might be about to do this. And within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around, and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Who would you rather be, the one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves, and you've stuck with me through thick and thin. Now I confer on you the royal authority of my father conferred on me so that you can eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and be strengthened as you take up responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. Simon, stay on your toes. Satan has tried his best to separate all of you from me like chaff from wheat. Simon, I've prayed for you in particular that you not give in or give out. When you've come through the time of testing, turn to your companions and give them a fresh start. Peter said, Master, I'm ready for anything with you. I'd go to jail for you. I'd die for you. Jesus said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Peter, but before the rooster crows, you will have three times denied that you know me. We'll continue on, pick up at verse 45. He got up from prayer. This Jesus has now gone from the upper room, made the trek uh, to, the, to the Mount of Olives, which is about two miles away from there. And so he's been out there praying by himself, uh, and now it says he got up from prayer, went back to the disciples and found them asleep, drugged by grief. He said, what business do you have sleeping? Get up, pray that you won't give into temptation. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than a crowd showed up. Judas, the one from the twelve in the lead, he came right up to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said, Jesus, you would betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those with him saw what was happening, they said, Master, shall we fight? And one of them, which we can read from the other Gospels, uh, is actually Peter, took a swing at the chief priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said, Let them be, even in this. Then touching the servant's ear, he healed him. Jesus spoke to those who'd come up, high priests, temple police, religion leaders. What is this, jumping me with swords and clubs as if I were a dangerous criminal? Day after day I've been with you in the temple, and you've not so much as lifted a hand against me. But do it your way. It's a dark night and a dark hour. I want to pull out a few things that we can see in these scriptures that that can really key us into God's way of doing things versus ours. Number one, in these scriptures, we see that when egos have preeminence, we miss what's going on with Jesus. When our false self is in the way, when we're all about, like, who's the greatest, I'm the best, uh, we miss what's going on with Jesus. See, Jesus, he was in really his roughest hour. When Jesus goes to pray at the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what happens? He's praying, and the the weight, the pressure of the cup that he's got to take is so heavy that he begins to sweat blood. I mean, this this only happens when you're under immense stress. So Jesus sees what's coming. He wants to celebrate Passover with with his disciples. It's a very important thing for him. But what do the disciples do while they're celebrating Passover? After a while, they just start arguing about who's the greatest. (laughs) I'm the best. I walked on water. Oh, yeah, well, I'm the one that that, that Jesus loved. Oh, well, I'm this, I'm that. And, And... 
they miss what's actually even going on with Jesus. Jesus, in his humanity, at that moment, is, is feeling the weight. He knows that, that the next day, at that hour, he'll be crucified. He knows that the next day, that, at that, that point in the evening, the next day, he will be dead and in a tomb. And his disciples miss what's going on with him. The second thing we, we, we can see is Peter the poser. <laughs> Peter, like, like reality stars of our day, Peter thinks much higher of himself than he ought to. He really thinks he has what it takes. And Jesus has to say, Peter, look, I'm praying. I'm praying for all you guys, but especially you, Peter. You're the top of my list because Satan wants to sift you. He wants to separate you guys from me. But I'm praying when it's all said and done, that, that, that what, what happens in you will be for good. Now, Jesus doesn't say this in a condescending kind of way. He doesn't say, Peter, you stupid fool, you're going to abandon me whenever. He just says, Peter, I know the real you. Right now, you think you're capable of a lot of stuff. You think you're the number, number one guy and, and you, you know, my go-to guy. You can do anything. But he's like, I'm going to tell you something. When, when the pressure's on, you're, you don't have what it takes. But that's okay. Because once you've come through this, I'm going to use what happens in you. The third thing we see in these passages is that Jesus is the pattern of humility through what he says and through what he does. If you read the book of John, the same, same passage, you find out that Jesus had actually washed their feet that evening. I thought we might try that today. Just kidding. Um, Jesus actually washed their feet. He's been serving them. And, and, and when they start bickering about who's the greatest and stuff, he's like, guys, don't you get it? Well, let me clear something up for you. I'm the greatest in here. I'm Jesus, the son of God, Okay. We all on the same page there? So I'm the greatest. But what have I been doing ever since we got here? Have you noticed? Y'all been bickering too much to notice that I washed your feet when you came in. I've been serving you at the table. While you guys were arguing about who's the greatest, I just kind of sat back and have kept my mouth shut. But understand that even though I am the greatest one in here, I've demonstrated my greatness not by lording it over you, not by demanding things of you, but by coming underneath you, by power under instead of power over. He says, you know, the people of the world, your bosses, your rulers, they're all about power over, demanding their way, you know, just uh, getting what they want, throwing their weight around. But he's like, that's not the way you guys do it. You, you guys follow the same pattern that I'm following. In his book, uh, Myth of a Christian Nation, I, I love this quote by... Greg Boyd, he writes, When God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it doesn't look like Rambo or the Terminator. It looks like Calvary. In other words, when God flexes his muscle, it's not like, It's like this. When God wants to show his power, it showed not in in, in, in these amazing acts of might, it showed in, in what looks like absolute weakness to the world, but it's the very power of God. He goes on to say, and living in this Calvary-like love, moment by moment, in all circumstances and in relationship to all people, is the soul calling of those who are aligned with the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Participants in the kingdom of the world trust the power of the sword to control behavior, 
Participants in the kingdom of God trust the power of self-sacrificial love to transform hearts. The kingdom of the world is concerned with preserving law and order by force. The kingdom of God is concerned with establishing the rule of God through love. The kingdom of the world is centrally concerned with what people do. The kingdom of God is centrally concerned with how people are and what they will become. The kingdom of God is characterized by outrageous, even scandalous grace. I believe this is a picture of Jesus. His final hours, that's exactly what he showed. See, even when, even when they come to, to get Jesus, even when they come to arrest him and, Jesus, and Judas betrays him, what does disciples do? Peter picks up a sword, cuts a guy's ear off, and Jesus picks up the ear, sticks it back on the guy's head. It's like, Peter, come on. Really? After all this time, you think what I'm about is picking up the sword and fighting the Romans or the Jews or whatever? He's like, that's not my kingdom. That's their kingdom. That's the way they wage war. That's the way they demonstrate power. Let me show you what true power is. And Jesus shows that all the way up to the cross the next day. So a couple of little closing thoughts on the way of humility. Number one, we must remain teachable. I I read a a quote. uh, This is a great quote. Uh, Catherine Doucette, she said, Every person in this life has something to teach me, and as soon as I accept that, I open myself to truly listening. Every person has something to teach me. When we forget that, that's when we start getting selfish ambition and that's when we start getting vain conceit and empty glory. We start acting like a poser like Peter. But when we go into situations saying, you know, God, you can, you know, little word, God spoke to somebody through an ass in the Old Testament. So uh, he can use anybody to speak to you. A donkey. I'll use King James there for a second. I heard T.G. Jakes use it, so, you know. Uh, (laughs) Every person has something to teach you. Every person. Even your friends, your enemies, your boss, your co-workers. If we can keep that attitude, we can begin to hear God in all sorts of things. Second thing is, it's teachable and being generous. Paul quotes uh, Jesus in Acts 20, 35. He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. See, when our lives are about hoarding stuff and getting more stuff and more materials, more possessions, we, we miss the true riches. When we're generous, we find that that statement's true, that when we give, we really receive something greater than what we even let go of. The third thing is we find the freedom of not having to be in control. You ever found that freedom before? When you finally, you've been wrestling with anxiety and trying to push all the buttons and grab for as much stuff you can and preserve yourself. When you finally do like what we sang in that song today, uh, I'm giving you my heart, my dreams, I surrender all to you. When you finally take your hands off, isn't that amazing? It's the freedom of not having to be in control. And when you take your hands off, again, that's another step on the path of humility. The last thing I want to mention, we, we've talked about this in our small groups this last week, Todd Hunter's book, um, Christianity Beyond Belief, uh, he, he has this little picture called The Triangle of Presence. And the idea here is in everything in life, we can, can use this kind of picture. We, 
And if you talked about this in small group, this is just a reminder. It's probably not a bad thing to be reminded of. You know, when you go to Walmart, when you go to Wendy's, when you go to work, when you're hanging out with your family, a, a lot of times we're just focused on ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, really, get down to it. It's, it's just all about me. So a big step is, is learning how to be conscious of, of other people, that, that when you're talking to somebody, you're, you're really actually listening. You ever had, you know, you're talking to somebody and you can tell they're s- somewhere else? It happens to me every weekend. It's happening right now. <laughs> but that when you're really talking with somebody, you're, 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 you're trying to be there with them and understand and, and truly listen. It, it's keeping a focus on them, but at the same time, keeping your focus on God. God, I'm here talking with Dan, and we've got things we need to do. There's a, a project that I need his help on. But, but are you saying anything to Dan in this moment? Are you saying anything? And as we kind of keep that triangle of presence going, then all of a sudden, again, we're maintaining an attitude of humility, an openness to God and an openness to others. So it's kind of multitasking to focus on others and focus on God, but I believe when it gets down to it, these are a few things kind of practically help us. So I just want to read this text one more time and we'll close in prayer. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Father God, we ask today for the grace to do that, Lord. We, we just... God, I think on our own, we, we become self-absorbed, self-consumed, where we value other people as objects, where we ask for your grace this week to, to be aware of your presence, to be aware of what you're saying, God, that we could truly enter into the world of others, Lord, that we could remain teachable, we could remain open to whatever you want to speak to us, no matter who you might speak it through. God, let that be that be in our hearts this this week, Lord. We just ask for your grace, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you again, Jesus, for your, the pattern of your life, the example you've lived, and we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower us to be as Jesus to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd care for some prayer this morning, uh, some, some specific prayer, uh, be glad to pray with you. Other than that, uh, thank you guys for coming on out. See you next weekend. All right? All right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye.